take our Bibles and go to the book of Jude again. Jude, this, uh, the verse number 9, and we'll be looking at verses 9 through 13 this morning. Jude, verses 9 through 13. And verse number 9, of course, is that very one of the first uh, verses we kind of delved into or looked at in the very first week that we began the series on the book of Jude. And we'll begin reading verse number 9 down through uh, verse number 13. Jude 9. The Bible says, Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally. As brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. These are spots in your feasts of charity, when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, Trees whose fruit withereth, without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now let's begin with the extremely negative portion of this. You might say, isn't it all negative? Uh, this is probably, in this particular book, Jude, of, of Jude, this is probably the most direct that we see about the announcement of a judgment that is coming on these false teachers and these false prophets who, remember, we learned had crept in unawares to the, the, the church in general. So as we think about the judgment of God, and we've been, uh, even as we've read through our confession of faith over the last few weeks during this, uh, in this, in the second paragraph of our, uh, deals with judgment in our confession of faith, the Bible, uh, the confession tells us this, that the end of God's appointing this day in reference to judgment is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice, in the eternal damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and glory with everlasting rewards in the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, shall be cast aside into everlasting torments and punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So when we're dealing with the judgment of God and we're dealing with the announcement of the judgment of God, we are dealing with that which is a serious matter. Now let's draw our attention to verse number 11. We'll come back to these thoughts, but notice the use of the word woe that begins verse number 11. Woe unto them. Woe is a small word, but has a powerful impact as far as what the word means. 
The word woe is not just stop and listen or stop and pay attention. The word woe throughout the scripture is uh, meant to demonstrate or to show deserved condemnation. Woe unto them, exclamation point. Deserved condemnation is coming. Condemnation that is deserved. The woe introduces three different types of false doctrine or false ways. Jude speaks of those who've gone in the way of Cain, those who have gone after the error of Balaam, and those that have followed after the gainsaying of Kor. We'll call those this morning a trilogy of woe. Three woes announced on three false ways. The way of Cain, the way of Balaam, and the way of Kor. Now, this morning, we look at those things and we think Jude is writing these words in a victorious manner. I would say it is the exact opposite. Jude is writing these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit with deep regret, with deep grief, and something that he does not really enjoy making an announcement of. I'll say as a side note this morning, if we ever get comfortable announcing judgment or condemnation or eternal damnation on anybody, we really need to check our own faith. We don't claim this as something that we find, great, God is going to finally get them. Remember, we all deserve condemnation. We all deserve everlasting condemnation if it were not for the grace of God. So we don't announce things in a happy fashion where we say, yeah, God, I'm glad you're finally going to get these people who are going the wrong way. Jude is speaking this and expressing this with deep grief. But what he cannot argue with is he cannot argue what the Word of God has said about those who go away from the truth of God. Condemnation. Even as we read in our Confession of Faith, it is condemnation that is deserved. We can see Jude here with a sense of sadness that this is happening. We can see him having a sense of understanding that the Bible has told us that this time would come, that there would be those whose wickedness and sin would be so deep and so far gone that the condemnation they will have reserved for themselves. One of the things that God gets blamed for is man's condemnation. Make no mistake about it, man condemns himself. Man condemns himself because he refuses God. So what we understand about the sin and the wickedness of these individuals, these Gnostics, these false teachers we've learned about, Jude is predicting not a new prophecy on them. He's telling what's already been prophesied years before. We look at these false teachers and these Gnostic believers this morning because they have thrown themselves into eternal damnation. The examples that are given are Cain, Balaam, and Korah. These are, again, Old Testament examples, much like when we looked at the examples of Sodom and Gomorrah last week and the people coming out of Egypt. They are examples of what is coming to these now false teachers, these Gnostics, 
that are in this particular congregations. So let's look at verse number nine. This is that controversial verse we looked at that demonstrates or talks about an event that the Bible does not specifically speak of. This disputing of the body of Moses is not found in Old Testament Scripture. There is not an account where the Bible says Michael the archangel got into a dispute with the devil about the body of Moses. If you'll recall, when we studied this the very first week, it's, many believe that this either is a reference to one of the books of the Apocrypha or a, a book now that does not even exist called The Assumption of Moses. Now, here's what we need to remember. If God put it in the Bible, if God put it in the Word, we need to take heed to it because it's still under the inspiration of Scripture, even if we do not fully understand what is this event and what is it exactly talking about. There's a lesson that is being taught here. It is what is meant by the body of Moses. Now, there are some preachers and commentators over the years that have said that the body here is not a dispute over the physical body of Moses, but it was a dispute over the law that Moses delivered. In other words, the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law. That the body that's being argued here and being disputed is, does the Old Testament law really apply? That's one explanation for it. One commentator from years ago did say this, he said it is beyond controversy that Moses died and was buried by the Lord and his grave is concealed according to the purpose of God that neither he nor his grave became an object of worship and idolatry. Now the Bible teaches us in Deuteronomy that he, Moses' body was buried and the location was not revealed. So if you turn over to Deuteronomy 34, I want you to see this. I think it's important for us to kind of see what the Bible teaches us about this. And it'll be in the 34th chapter. And we'll see this being declared about the body of Moses. Deuteronomy 34, beginning in verse number one. This is the account of Moses has reached near the promised land. He was told earlier in the book that he would see the promised land, but he would never go in. We all recall that story. And it tells us in verse 1, And Moses went up from the plains of Moab under the mountain of Nebo to the top of Pisgah that is over against Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead unto Dan, and all of Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh and all the land of Judah unto the utmost sea and the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees under Zoar. And the Lord said unto him, This is the land which I swear unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, saying, I will give it unto thy seed. I have caused thee to see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not go over thither. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him, that's the Lord, the Lord buried him in the valley in the land of Moab over against Beth Peor, but no man knoweth of his sepulcher unto this day. And Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was not dim, nor his natural face abated. And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. I've heard many people take the position of feeling sorry for Moses. 
Moses did so much for the work of the Lord. We talk about Moses today and we we speak about his obedience to God and we speak about all the things that he did in leading God's people out of Egypt. Yet it was one error in the wilderness primarily that led to Moses being given this particular promise that Moses, you will never go into the promised land. It is a serious matter. And yet we see that this dispute that Jude writes about is based upon something that nobody knows, the sepulcher of Moses. So what is this story about? What is this account that Jude is talking about? If they don't know where the tomb is, they don't know where the sepulcher is, then it could not have been a physical dispute over his body. So what's happening here? Well, let's look at the the characters back in Jude 9. There's a reference to Michael, the archangel. There's a reference to what we've just looked at, the body of Moses. But it, look, it tells us that Michael is contending with the devil. So wherever this account came from, Jude wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, whether it came from an apocryphal story or whether it came from the assumption of Moses, whatever the case may be, Jude is writing about something that said that Satan contended with the body of Moses. Now, let's talk about the characteristic of Satan for a moment. Satan is all about self-worship. Satan is all about worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Satan desired himself to be elevated to God. The devil tells us here there was a dispute with Michael over Moses' body. Now, again... It can't be the physical body. If it was over the body of the law of Moses, what Moses delivered, we could take that position. But I want you more specifically to notice the position that Michael takes while contending with the devil. Because to me, this is where the real lesson is. There's a contention between the devil and Michael. But look what it says how Michael dealt with the situation. He durst not or dared not bring against him, that's the devil himself, a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Here's Michael the archangel, instead of debating with the devil, says, listen, this is not my place. The Lord will rebuke you. The Lord himself will rebuke you. Michael will not even bring a railing accusation against the devil himself. But instead, he says, the Lord will judge. There's a lesson in there, folks. There is a lesson to be found that here Michael, the archangel, now remember, he didn't do this because he was afraid of Satan, and he's not doing this because he honored and respected Satan. But what Michael has done is he chose to leave judgment and condemnation to him alone who has the right to pronounce condemnation, which is not a right that you and I have. Now, we can can proclaim the word of God, but here's the truth. The devil will be dealt with and has been dealt with by God himself. Many have the idea that Satan's just unhinged. He is still under the power of Almighty God. 
So we see this, and we can ask ourselves the question. We don't really know what this is referring to, but God says it, so I believe it. We cannot find a text in the Old Testament that says this event took place, but some fact was known to Jude that Jude wrote about it. Jude speaks of something by revelation, and he records it. So what's our position on verse number 9? We believe it. I may not be able to track it where it exactly came from. I may not be able to explain to you exactly what this event was, whether the dispute was over the body of Moses physically or the body of, of the laws, but we learn the lesson from how Michael dealt with the archangel. Imagine this. He would not bring a railing accusation against the accuser. Satan's title is the accuser of the brethren, and Michael the archangel would not bring a railing accusation even against Satan. Now, again, this isn't standalone. Satan, who is the known enemy of God, Michael would not make an accusation against the devil. Yet these Gnostics, these false teachers that crept in unawares, they're making accusations against God himself. Michael would make a railing accusation against Satan, yet these Gainsayers, these false teachers, are accusing God. You see the lesson? Michael wouldn't even accuse the devil. Yet these Gnostics are guilty of accusing God. If Michael would not dare give a railing accusation against Satan, how much evil is it for these Gnostics to speak against God's authority and against God himself? Remember what I told you? Man puts himself into eternal damnation. It is a serious thing to rail against God. It is a serious thing to say and to twist the truth of God. Or as we have learned, to turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. To deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. We've learned all of these lessons. That brings us to this trilogy of woe that Jude is writing about. Notice verse 10 is directly connected with verse number nine. The Lord rebuke thee, but these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts. In those things, here's the key, they corrupt themselves. Now remember, these Gnostics did not come in as, and profess to be non-believers. They came in professing to be of the same faith. But yet Jude says these men did not have real faith. These men are still dead in their trespasses and sin. They do not have the understanding of the things of God, which we know from 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man cannot understand the things of God. So we're dealing with people who are not in the faith. It's an amazing thing that this gives us words to describe. Brute beasts. In those things, they corrupt themselves. It's a horrible thought to think about how far man's sin will take him. We sit here today as born-again believers, redeemed, 
who say things like this, I would never bring a railing accusation against my Lord. I would never do those things because you do not have just the natural mind. You have a mind that has been renewed by the Spirit of God. You understand and discern spiritual things. That's the only reason any of this is making any sense today is because the Holy Spirit of God has given you discernment. And yet, we're given an example here of just how far man's sin will take him. These men are going to the very limit of the possibility of sin to bring an accusation against God. Again, men that bring accusations against God and hold to them, reserve for themselves eternal damnation. Again, we see that phrase, woe unto them. A declaration of deserved condemnation with a prediction of what's going to bring them down. Woe unto them. So what is this trilogy of woe? What are these things that he's talking about? The first one that Jude mentions is the way of Cain. The way of Cain. What is the way of Cain? Let's turn back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis 4, and we're just going to look for reference sake at verses 1 through 7. Genesis 4, verses 1 through 7. And we'll look at this first of this trilogy. Genesis 4, verses 1 through 7. Of course, this particular chapter is the, the account of Cain and Abel. Verse number 1 of Genesis 4. And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted, and if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Now there's a lot we could talk about this text, and this morning is not the full exposition of those verses. But the way of Cain can be brought down to a very simple principle. And again, this is not exhaustive. And some will say, I've always heard that this was because it was a bloodless sacrifice. And all of those things are exactly there. But ultimately, at the, at the core of what Jude is teaching us and talk about the way of Cain is that Cain was envious of his brother's offering being accepted. Now, again, all the theology behind that and all I understand that. But I want us to get to the heart of what he's saying. The way of Cain is the way of envy. These, these, these ministers that came in, that crept in unawares, what Jude is telling them is that these men envied the gifts. They envied, this, they envied what these true ministers of God were actually receiving. Cain's way was the way of hatred. It's an envy. What did, what did he end up doing? He ended up killing his brother. And we can talk about, yes, this is all that is why it happened, but he rose up and killed his own brother, then admitting to his own error. 
These Gnostics, these false teachers who came in, crept in unawares, they had a hatred for the things of God. They had a hatred for the ministers of God. Remember, one of the things that we learned about them is they despised authority. In the book of Hebrews, chapter number 11, verse number 4, the Bible says, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. So the way of Cain is the way of envy. Jude then mentions those who ran, they ran greedily after the error of Balaam. Now, the, the, the error of Balaam in your Bible is actually summarized in Numbers chapter 22 through Numbers 25. And the summary of Balaam's error was covetousness and a love of money. That's really what it boils down to. False teachers are more times than not motivated, motivated by a love for applause and a love of money or a love of self-glory. And if you read about the way of Balaam and you see that, you will find that that's exactly what's at the heart of this. There is this, this error of coveting and this desire for applause, this desire for uh, self to be glorified. In 2 Peter 2... Verses 11 through 17. Remember, we looked a few weeks ago how 2 Peter 2 runs almost, uh, almost verbatim in, its, in the language that it uses. But in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse number 11, the Bible says, Whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord, but these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruptions, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are, and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings, while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, a heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Basor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumb ass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. We understand that these are not new things. These are things that have been. Today, it is not difficult to look out on the horizon of ministry and find many who are running greedily after the error of Balaam. They are, quote-unquote, serving the Lord only for what they receive for it. Your television is full of it. It's staggering to me how many Bible believers find profit 
in most of what you're seeing on the television. There is no profit in it. They have gone the way of Balaam. They are there for one reason and one reason only, and they are called in the book of Jude, and yet we see it happening around us today, and yet there are believers who have bought in to those that have crept in unawares, and they say, well, they claim to be Christian, then I guess I can trust them. You can't trust those that have fallen into the error of the way of Balaam. In the book of Revelation, chapter number 2, verses 12 through 15, it's, actually, it's mentioned It's mentioned in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 2, verse number 12. This is the church at Pergamos. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, verse 12, write, These things saith he which hath a sharp sword with two edges, I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. This particular part, it, it commends the church at Pergamos. It says, you've, you've done these things. You're holding, where, you're holding fast my name. You have not denied my faith. But in verse 14, he says, but I have a few things against thee. Because thou hast there, this ought to startle us. You have there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. Church at Pergamos, within your church, you're standing there for the faith. You have not denied my name. You've even had a faithful martyr by the name of Antipas who died for my sake. Yet dwelling with you are them who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. And verse 16, repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone and in the stone a new name written which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth. When we see phrases like this and we see these errors, this trilogy of woe, these are, these are those that have, are about to receive deserved condemnation. And then the third of this trilogy, back in Jude 9, is those that perish in the gainsaying of Kor. We see the account of this in number 16. So turn back to number 16 and look, just going to look at the first three verses here. Again, these are full these are a full exposition series you'd have to do to cover all of this. But we see in these first three verses the error. We see, we see the, the rebellion here. Verse 1 of number 16. Now Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Koath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. Set the stage here. Moses is the one that God 
put in authority, right? Moses is the one that was chosen by God. You are the one who I am going to use to carry out my purposes. The phrase gives it away. And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly. This is not, this is not to go unnoticed. Famous in the congregation. We might call them today people whose voices might be heard. Men of renown. There are always in churches people's voices that will be heard above others. They just have the ability to do it. But what's happening here, you have in the congregation of that Moses is leading, 250 of them rise up, and here it is, verse 3, and they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. Okay, they have no good intention here. Yet here's what they say. Ye take too much upon you. Seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them, wherefore then lift up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. These 250 pull people with them and say, listen, who gave Moses and Aaron the right to be the ones in authority? All the rest of us are just as holy as they are. It wasn't about the holiness, it was about the choice of God. God put Moses and Aaron in that authority. They are the recognized authority that God chose. This is rebellion. And we learn through that chapter, and we learn how, and verse 4, it's always been amazing to me how Moses responded to this. And when Moses heard it, he fell upon his face. And he spake unto Korah and all his company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his, and who is holy, and will cause him to come near unto him. Even him who he hath chosen will he cause to come near unto him. This do, take ye censors, Korah, and all his company. So he begins to give them these instructions, and it's, it, it goes on, and it's amazing, but the, the, the idea here is the rebellion, and that's what Jude is talking about, that as Korah contradicted Moses and Aaron, these men, these men that crept in unawares that Jude is writing about, they oppose the ministers of Christ. What they ultimately want to do is they want to remove the ministers that God has placed there so that they can rule. Folks, this happens weekly in this country where a congregation says, we don't like the rulers, let's just get rid of them so we can do it our way. And I will tell you this morning, there's nobody who leads in a church who's doing it the right way that comes in saying, I have all the power, I have all the control. I'm the... No, they understand the humility that must come with it. But the, the rebellion here is what Jude is doing is he is foretelling and showing that these men, this trilogy of woe, they are just like the people who went the way of Cain, just like the people that were guilty of the error of Balaam, and they're just like the people who rebelled, just like Korah. These men were not there to help the church. They were not there to make it better. They were not there to correct that which is wrong. They were not there to say, they were there to destroy it. 
Notice how it goes on to describe them in verses 12 and 13. These are spots. You might mark that word. These are spots in your feasts of charity. A spot in your feasts of charity. It was very common for the churches to have what is referred to as love feasts. They are what we would call today as fellowship. Fellowship helps unity. Fellowship helps us encourage one another. Fellowship helps us to edify one another and to strengthen one another. But look how Jude describes them. They are spots in your feast of charity. The word is also translated spoilers. They are spoilers in your love feast. In other words, instead of coming in to help unity, to help fellowship, to encourage brotherly love, to edify, to strengthen, they came in to feed themselves at the same time promoting their own positions and to sow the seeds of discord. They spoil not only the love feast, but even as a church, we observe the Lord's Supper on a monthly basis. They would also be there to mar that fellowship and destroy that. Listen, we ought to take note about this. We ought to take note to the fact that they would so easily come in and spoil what God has done. Look what it says, when they feast with you. They're seated at the same table as you are. Folks, let me just ask by way of application, do we really actually believe that this could happen in our day and age? Or are we naive enough to think this would never happen? Everybody who comes in the front door, all they have to say is we're professing Christ. That's why it's creeping in unawares. Nobody knew they were there. They were seated at the table with them. Yet the Bible describes them as not only spots, but he says feeding themselves without fear. That's the mark of somebody who is nowhere near God. Listen, if you can accuse God, if you can try to disrupt God's people, if you can try to sow seeds of discord, if you can call into a question the authority God has established, you're doing that without the fear of God. And you reserve for yourself eternal condemnation. Now in our day of political correctness. We're not allowed to call it. We're told we can't call it what it is anymore. We can't say that these are people who are actually coming to destroy. No, we're being forced to try to accept everything and accept everyone and just pretend like it's not there. And yet, they feed without fear. He also goes on and describes them as clouds without water. It's an interesting phrase. You think about the clouds. The clouds, on some days, they are too numerous to count. Some days, you could be standing out on a cloudless sky, go out half an hour later, and the sky is filled with clouds, right? It happens around here all the time. Perfectly sunny day, you look out and it's cloudy. The example here is he's talking about how sudden they come up. They elevate themselves into positions, puffed up with their own pride, no fear of God, 
They're said to be clouds without water. And I like what one preacher said. He said, they have the appearance and the promise of rain, but they never bring rain. They only bring destruction. Some of the beautiful clouds you see on a sunny day are not clouds that are going to bring rain, but then there are other clouds that rise up that that's exactly what they do. They bring storms. He goes on and describes them as trees. This will be applicable to what we'll talk about in the next service. Trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. They're without leaves that provide anything. They're without fruit, the fruits of the Spirit, grace, love, humility, joy. Twice dead means not only are they dead in sin, but they have now been judicially blinded or given over by God to a reprobate, corrupt mind. Folks, these are not people you're going to reason with. Can I tell you, not every man can be reasoned with. There are times in life where there's a decision that is made where it is, listen, this is not discussing. This is done. Now, there are people who will say, listen, I got thrown out of a church for no good reason. I'm going to tell you something. There's been times when churches have had seen this happen. They've seen it rise up and the church has said, listen, we're not going to stand for that. And you make those decisions and you don't, be, you don't concern yourself about, listen, did everybody get a fair hearing? We are talking about people that are there to destroy you and you want to give them a fair hearing. Again, this will come across as hate speech. These are people who are trying to destroy. Now, as far as I know, I've never faced this in any church where that you could say that there were people like this that we knew of. But to sit here today and think this can't happen. You know, it's an amazing thing. People get caught up in church growth. We want more people. We want more people. We want more people. We want more people. And we start looking around and we say more people means health. No, sometimes more people means you've got a lot more people who crept in unawares and you better be on guard. Now, again, we've said this a million times. Anybody comes to that door is welcome to come to the front doors of this church. I don't want anybody turned away because of the way they look. You welcome them in and you put them, you sit in with you if you need to. But listen, not everybody that comes in and says, Lord, Lord, can be trusted. And it's happening today. It's happening in churches. There are churches just like this one that once stood on the truth that are not standing anymore because somebody crept in unawares and all of these errors caught on and it brought the church down. They are raging waves of the sea. They are wandering stars. Raging waves, they're nothing but empty. Wandering stars, maybe it's a reference to falling stars. They dazzle the eyes for a moment. But ultimately what they're doing is they're plunging forever into darkness. Is a dreadful thought what he ends with. He says, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. This is in reference not to the heathen who are out there today holding up false idols. They're showing you what they believe. It's not even for people who you talk to on the street, you ask about the gospel and they say, I don't want anything to do with the gospel. He's talking about people 
who creep into the church unaware that this is reserved for. It's really easy for us to call out the false gods of the world and miss the danger of the men that creep in unaware. If I brought in a bunch of statues today of different idols from around the world, we would all identify them. We would all say, yes, that's an idol, that's an idol, that's an idol, that's a false god, that's a false god. The challenge that Jude is putting before us is not, these are not people who are going to be open about their falseness. They're people who are going to talk like you. They're going to act like you. They're going to seem they hold to the same truth as you do. But they're not there to edify and encourage and help. They are there to absolutely destroy. False teachers, these Gnostics we've learned about, are to expect eternal punishment. Those who live this, those who come into the church, who speak and accuse God. God's already declared the doom that's, uh, that is announced upon them. Listen, they are truly facing a coming wrath and a true judgment of God. You and I need to remember this morning and be on guard. We're not beyond this. We are not, we are, we are not immune to this. We need to be sound and sure in what exactly we know and what we believe and why we believe it. And recognize that which is error. Recognize these things can happen today. We take a lot for granted. We begin to believe that the world around us thinks like believers ought to think. We start believing that, listen, this could not happen to our church because we are, we are in our Bibles, we are solid in our doctrine, we're reminded of our doctrine every single time we gather together. This can't happen to us. It certainly can. And I think it would be wise for us to understand that the Lord would not leave this for us if this was something that was not supposed to be applied to us. We need to be aware of the trilogy of woe. Those that have gone in the way of Cain, the heir of Balaam, and in the gainsaying of Kor. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, I thank you for your guidance and direction this morning. We've dealt with a very serious matter and we've dealt with a very difficult subject to teach. And Lord, it's something that we don't want to think about. Lord, it's something that when we think about our church and we think about the families and individuals, it might even, if we're honest, be unfathomable to us. But Lord, I pray that you would give us and remind us of the discernment, the discernment to be able to recognize error. Lord, that error is not to be taken lightly. It's not something we can just be okay with. It's not something we can compromise on. Lord, I do pray that we would be a loving people. Lord, I pray that we would never find joy in the condemnation of anyone. But Lord, we also know that there are those that seek to harm. They seek to destroy. And Lord, they could very well come inside of this church for that purpose. 
Lord, I pray that you would help us to always be on guard and be aware. Lord, may we respond to this in our worship of you, thanking you that you have opened our eyes, you've given us the truth that we might see, that you've not allowed us to go in the way of error, but that, Lord, you have secured us, you have given us the truth. Lord, help us to be faithful to the truth of your word. We love you and we thank you for all that you do. And it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. If you'll stand with me, I want to conclude with a reading from our Valley of Vision. A great reminder as we go into our time of fellowship. Lord God Almighty, I ask not to be enrolled amongst the earthly great and rich, but to be numbered with the spiritually blessed. Make it my present, supreme, persevering concern to obtain those blessings which are spiritual in their nature, eternal in their continuance, satisfying in their possession. Preserve me from a false estimate of the whole or part of my character. May I pay regard to my principles as well as my conduct, my motives as well as my actions. Help me never to mistake the excitement of my passions for the renewing of the Holy Spirit, never to judge my religion by occasional impressions and impulses, but by my constant and prevailing disposition. May my heart be right with thee, and my life as becometh the gospel. May I maintain a supreme regard to another and better world, and feel and confess myself a stranger and a pilgrim here. Afford me all the direction, defense, support, and consolation my journey hence requires, and grant me a mind stayed upon thee. Give me large abundance of the supply of the Spirit of Jesus, that I may be prepared for every duty, love thee in all my mercies, submit to thee in every trial, trust thee when walking in darkness, have peace in thee amidst life's changes. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief and uncertainties. All right, who are dismissed, we'll go into our time of fellowship. We'll look forward to seeing you back here at our second service in just a while. Thank you.